True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the True Crime Fix podcast with Stevie B. I'm going to start this episode slightly different this week with a confession. In the six months of preparation that I did prior to the release of this podcast, I have rewritten this episode three times, as I wanted to do the story justice. Not because it was difficult to write, rather, the further I delved into this case, I found myself becoming increasingly angry and it was coming out in the script. It's an example of how some criminals have no regard for their victims, and a prime example of how you can be very much in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's also a good example of how a story can be twisted so that the perpetrator portrays himself as the victim without granting the people whose lives they've changed the same courtesy. I'm Steve, and this is the full story of the British man in Georgia, which I alluded to in my introductory episode. Welcome to your true crime fix, and this episode is dedicated to the memory of J.C. Sawyer. Black Jack Mountain is a scenic landmark located in the very southwest corner of Carroll County, Georgia, on the Georgia-Alabama border and the Herald County line. The date was the 3rd of June, 1983, and it was a pleasantly warm day of 22.4 degrees Celsius, that's 72.2 degrees Fahrenheit. Mary Eunice Sawyer arrived home at one of the log cabins on Black Jack Mountain, She was the owner of a small alteration shop in Cartersville, approximately 30 miles away. Mrs Sawyer had come home at approximately 6.20 and prepared dinner for her and her husband, J.C. Sawyer. J.C. Sawyer was born on the 8th of October 1927 and was a retired sergeant in the US Army and a veteran of the Korean War. Taking advantage of the warm day, he was working in the garden where he stayed until just after quarter past seven. Just after 8pm, there was a loud bang at the door. Mary Sawyer answered the door to a young white man armed with a pearl-handled pistol. The man forced his way past her and entered the home, shouting and swearing at Mrs Sawyer. Mr Sawyer, hearing the commotion, came to his wife's aid and pushed the man back out onto the porch. The intruder raised his gun and told them to get back inside or he'd blow their heads off. He then demanded money and their car keys whilst keeping the gun against Mr Sawyer's head. He then noticed Mrs Sawyer looking at his tattoos. He said in a threatening manner, Go on, remember the tattoos. If that doesn't get you killed now, it will later. Following the threats and demands for money, 
Mrs. Sawyer fetched $60 from her bedroom. Mr. Sawyer tried to get up from his chair, but the man fired a warning shot between his feet to prove that the gun was not a toy. He again threatened to blow their heads off if they did not comply with his demands. In response, Mrs. Sawyer gave the man the $60 she had retrieved and Mr. Sawyer gave him the keys to their blue and white Chevrolet pickup truck. Mrs. Sawyer begged the man to let her husband have his medication as he had a diagnosed heart condition, but the man said he wouldn't be needing it anymore. The armed man told Mr. Sawyer to get some rope off the back of his truck and he forced him to walk into the woods at the back of his house. The man tied the Sawyer's hands behind their backs and made them sit with their backs against a tree trunk. He then proceeded to tie them to the tree. As the Sawyers begged for their lives, the man again continued with his threats, saying that he liked to torture people. The intruder took off his shirt, tore it in two, and stuffed the two halves in their mouths. He told them he would have to kill them because they could identify him. The man reiterated, I like to torture men whilst their women watch. He continued, It'll be two or three days for your bodies to be found, and if any of your family finds any evidence to convict me, the most I'll get is 30 years, and then I'll come back and get them. Then he hit Mr Sawyer with his gun and fired one shot into his head. He then turned and fired at Mrs Sawyer's head, but as Mr Sawyer slumped on the other side of the tree, she was jolted by the rope and pulled down to one side the bullet struck her crown. There was blood, but she was still conscious, and had the wherewithal to feign her death until she heard the truck drive off. Realising that her husband was dead, Mrs Sawyer managed to untie herself and went to a neighbour's house to call the police. The man who had broken into the Sawyer's property was British-born Nicholas Ingram. Nicholas Lee Ingram was born on the 20th of November 1963. Ingram was born in the historic town of Cambridge to an English mother and an American father, Anne and Johnny Ingram. His father was an airman in the United States Air Force and he held dual nationality. He and his parents moved to Cobb County, Georgia when he was 11. He continued to live with his father when his parents separated and got into drugs, alcohol and inevitably into crime. Earlier on the day of the murder, the 19-year-old Ingram had gone to a pawn shop with his friend 16-year-old Kevin Plummer in the latter's car to sell some car wheels and a ring. From there, they went to see a friend of Ingram's who worked at a convenience store. Upon leaving the store, Ingram and Plummer drove to a lake just north of Atlanta to swim. Ingram was an unhappy young man and he had decided to leave home and needed some money. Ingram and Plummer drove to Marietta, a town near their homes, and broke into a house tearing down the door and stealing a TV set and hi-fi equipment. Ingram drove to his brother's house and tried to sell him the TV. When his brother refused... Ingram threw the set out the second floor window. The two men then went to Ingram's father's house 
where Ingram retrieved the pearl-handled .38 revolver. Johnny Ingram later told the police that he had not given Ingram permission to take it. In police records, therefore, the visit is recorded as a burglary. Ingram intended to sell the gun to a friend, but when he failed to do so, Ingram told Plummer he knew where he could get a vehicle that he was going to use to get to California. Forensic tests later revealed that Johnny Ingram's gun had been used to murder Mr Sawyer. He directed Plummer to a driveway that led through the woods up Blackjack Mountain. They drove a short distance up a driveway and stopped. This was the Sawyer's property. Ingram got out and told Plummer to wait for him. He told Plummer that he might have to pistol whip the residents, but he was not sure that he could shoot them. He walked up the driveway and out of sight. Plummer decided not to wait and drove home. At around 9pm, following the brutality that had transpired at the Sawyer's cabin, Ingram returned to the convenience store he had visited earlier in the day. He remained only a few moments, then left driving the blue and white pickup truck that he had stolen from the Sawyers. Ingram fled through Alabama into Mississippi. Ingram must have changed vehicles as the Sawyers pickup truck was recovered on Interstate 20 in Mississippi on the 6th of June. Inside was a motel receipt from Lincoln, Alabama, dated June the 3rd, 1983. The motel's portion of the receipt was later obtained and the handwriting on it was identified as Ingram's. Two weeks after the Sawyers were robbed, Ingram had made his way to California. Whilst he was there, he met a woman in a bar and after chatting for a while, they went to the beach in her car, with Ingram driving. He told her he was Nick Jackson and he was wanted for murder in Georgia. After spending some time at the beach, they went to a motel. They had been there for about an hour and a half when his companion noticed that her purse was missing and called the police. Ingram became flustered and told her that he could not get involved with the police, but he was going to take the car and go and look for the thief. Ingram never returned, but now had access to a new vehicle and the missing purse. On the 22nd of June, Ingram called his grandmother from Louisiana and asked her if his name had been in the news. She told him yes, and that they were saying that he had committed murder. Ingram was next seen three days later in Colorado, where he and an unidentified companion picked up a hitchhiker in the car that he had acquired in California. Sometime into the journey, Ingram told the hitchhiker he should not have accepted a ride from strangers and stated, We're going to roll ya. He threatened that he had already killed one man and could kill another. The car that they were driving stopped on a dirt road under a bridge. Ingram made the hitchhiker remove his shirt, then cut up a towel using the knife that he had taken from this victim. Ingram used the parts to tie the man's hands behind him and then to a bridge post. Ingram tore the man's shirt and gagged him with it, reminiscent of his attack on Mr and Mrs Sawyer. Then he struck him in the face three or four times. 
when a car stopped on the bridge above and asked what was going on. Ingram told the car's occupants that they were having a party with some girls and the car drove off, only to return a short time later. By this time, Ingram and his companion had gone and the victim got a ride to a phone where he called the police. At approximately 11pm on June the 26th, a Nebraska state trooper observed a car parked under a viaduct on Interstate 80 near North Plate. Its hazard lights were on and the trooper stopped to render assistance. Ingram, now alone and still in the car that he had taken from the woman in California, was slumped over the steering wheel and smelled strongly of alcohol. After being breathalyzed, he was arrested for driving under the influence. When the law enforcement officers searched inside the car, they located the knife that he had taken from the victim in Colorado. He was taken to a local police precinct to sober up and was questioned the next day about the motor vehicle theft in California and the robbery in Colorado. Ingram again identified himself as Nick Jackson. He claimed to have borrowed the car and denied any knowledge of a hitchhiker being robbed in Colorado. Ingram had left his driver's licence in California and after checking with Californian authorities, Nebraska investigators again questioned Ingram about his true identity. At this point, he admitted his real name and stated, I'll save you some trouble. If you call Cobb County, Georgia, I believe they have a couple of murder warrants out for me. Questioning stopped then and was resumed by Georgia authorities after they had been contacted and he had returned to Georgia. In Ingram's account, he stated that he woke up on the 4th of June in a shopping centre parking lot in Alabama in the truck. He stated that he had blacked out from drinking and could not remember shooting or robbing anybody. On November the 20th, 1983, which was coincidentally Ingram's 20th birthday, a jury sitting in Cobb County found Nicholas Lee Ingram guilty of the malice murder of J.C. Sawyer. The sentence of death by electric chair was handed down. On appeal, the Georgia Supreme Court affirmed Ingram's convictions and sentences. On September 23, 1985, after exhausting his direct appeals, Ingram filed a petition of writ of habeas corpus in the Superior Court of Butts County, Georgia. A habeas corpus petition is basically a request to discover whether the person's detention is lawful based on the evidence provided. The Superior Court conducted an evidentiary hearing on December 7th, 1987 and denied Ingram's petition for habeas corpus on April 26th, 1988. The Georgia Supreme Court denied Ingram's motion for a certificate of probable cause to appeal on June 30th, 1988. He exhausted his state collateral appeals when the United States Supreme Court denied his petition for a writ of certiorari on November 28th, 1988. A writ of certiorari orders a lower court to deliver its record in a case so that a higher court may review it. 
on January the 4th, 1989, Ingram filed a petition for a writ of habeas corpus in the United States District Court for the Northern District of Georgia, and the District Court entered an order staying his execution. In his petition for habeas corpus, Ingram raised a myriad of issues challenging both his conviction and the sentence. After the district court denied his petition for a habeas corpus, Ingram filed a motion to alter and amend the judgment. The district court denied Ingram's motion. On September 10, 1992, the district court denied relief without conducting an evidentiary hearing. On July 12, 1994, Ingram appealed finally to the 11th Circuit Court of the United States Supreme Court. This appeal too was rejected. Whilst Ingram was challenging his execution date, which had been set for early April 1995, his mother Anne was attempting to get support back in his native United Kingdom. As well as going through the UK tabloids, giving interviews to The Independent and The Guardian specifically about her son's fate, she also appealed for the involvement of then Prime Minister John Major and the Archbishop of Canterbury, who appealed directly to the then Georgia governor, Zell Miller. Ingram's mother Anne and other relatives solicited and received statements appealing for clemency from 53 members of Parliament. The Archbishop of Canterbury, the President of the European Parliament and a number of human rights groups. In a handwritten response, the Prime Minister replied, I found your letter very moving and I can imagine the profound distress you may be feeling, but I have concluded with deepest regret that there are no proper grounds for the British government to intervene with the state of Georgia. Ingram's execution date was set for the 6th of April 1995. The day before, Mrs Anne Campbell, who was the Labour Party Member of Parliament for the Ingram family's home constituency in Cambridge, raised the question of the punishment in the House of Commons in London. Her description to Parliament was as follows. I quote, The misapprehension exists that execution by electrocution is painless and swift. It is not. Elsewhere, the overwhelming trend is towards more humane forms of execution. I should like to describe what observers at previous electrocutions have reported. They have reported that the body turns bright red as the temperature rises, that the flesh swells and that the skin is stretched to breaking point. Sometimes the prisoner catches fire, especially if he perspires excessively. The prisoner's fingers, toes and face are severely contorted. The force of the electrical current is so powerful that sometimes the eyeballs pop out and rest on their cheek. The prisoner often defecates, urinates, vomits and drools. Witnesses have often heard a loud and sustained sound like bacon frying and the sickly sweet smell of burning flesh permeates the air. In the meantime, the prisoner almost boils. The temperature of the brain approaches the boiling point of water, and when the post-electrocution autopsy is performed, 
the body is so hot it cannot be touched by human hand. When we speak about barbaric acts, that is exactly what we're talking about. Execution is not instantaneous. Death is not painless. Torture is prolonged and painful. Victims can take minutes to die or even to lose consciousness and they struggle to free themselves from the excruciating pain. Nick Ingram is a British citizen. He has been awaiting this horrific end for the past 12 years. He knows very well what is happening to prisoners who are electrocuted. I asked the House to judge whether the punishment really fits the crime. The sentence is decided by the Georgia Board of Pardon and Paroles. The legal adviser to the board has already said that he will listen to any appeal from the United Kingdom government with utmost gravity. In review of that, I find it extraordinary that the Prime Minister has felt unable to express any view on behalf of the UK government. End quote. It is really interesting to read her opinion written like that, describing Ingram as a victim. It is also interesting that she seems concerned about Ingram's torture, a courtesy that he did not extend to the Sawyers in 1983. In seeking to halt the execution, Ingram's lawyers argued that they had only recently learned that their client had been heavily drugged and medicated by prison officials before his 1983 trial. Therefore, he was not aware enough of proceedings to show a level of emotion that might have influenced the jurors not to recommend the death penalty. Ingram's appeal lawyers argued that he was given an antipsychotic drug during his trial that made him appear unemotional and remorseless. They also argued that his lawyer in the trial was not told of the diagnosis that Ingram had psychiatric problems, a diagnosis that might have altered the trying of the case. Georgia Attorney General Mike Bowers countered that those issues had been addressed in previous appeals. The courts agreed. District Judge Horace Ward dismissed pleas by Ingram's lawyers for a new hearing to examine alleged new evidence that he was drugged at his trial in 1983 and unable to brief his defence lawyers. On the day before his scheduled execution... 5th of April 1995, Ingram gave an interview to the Independent newspaper which read as follows. It is difficult for me to find the words to express what I want to say today. Let me begin by thanking everybody so much for taking time out of their busy lives to think of me and voice support for me in these very dark hours. For so very long I have felt so alone, sitting and waiting here on death row. I had my family and I had my attorney. Then people began to reach out to me. I think of and thank particularly Betty DeFazio from Bournemouth who has written to me all these years. And now I read and hear of a mighty flood, a wave of friends who I may never know trying to save my life. I cannot say how much it means to me. My family is everything to me, and I hate to see them in pain. For this reason, 
I have to respond to the letter to my mother from Mr Major for it caused her great suffering. She had gone way out on a limb for me because she knows I do not like her to beg for anything for me. Mr Major told her that there was no proper grounds to intervene in my case. Even though I desperately need help, perhaps it's true that Mr Major owes me nothing personally. However, he owes my mother an explanation why my government has no proper grounds to support her plea on behalf of her son. My mother deserves the respect from our government, even if Mr Major would rather have a placid visit to Washington. I do not want to die in Georgia's electric chair. I hate to see the suffering all this causes so many people. My family, the family of J.C. Sawyer and so many others. As I have said to my lawyers for years, I hate to go through all this without being able to face the courts and tell my side. At least I have got to write to Mrs. Sawyer and I hope she will not believe me to be the terrible animal that the prosecutors and press pretend. If I do die... I hope it's not for nothing. I hope people will see that a ritualistic killing in the electric chair solves nothing. I hope all of you do not forget and keep up your struggle for other people. I thank you again and may your God be with you. At least I know a part of me will always be somewhere else in a better place. I hope this does not happen. I feel your support is all that stands between me and death at this point. Please keep it up. Ingram declined his last meal, and when his family saw him for the last time, eight hours before his execution, Ingram, who had already had his head shaved, wore a baseball cap so it would not cause his mother any further upset. Following a 24-hour stay of execution, the execution date was set for the 7th of April, 1995. At his own request, he walked himself to the electric chair. He said nothing, glaring one by one at the guards, prison officials and witnesses who watched him die, at even his own attorney. When the warden, Albert Jerry Thomas, asked him if he had any last words, Ingram simply spat at him. As the moment of death approached, A strange silence settled over those outside the prison, even among a small group of death penalty supporters who had cheered the hearse that would collect Ingram's body fell silent. As they positioned the metal cap over his head and fastened the brown leather mask over his face, Ingram's knuckles clenched tight on the arms of the electric chair. Then the executioner pressed the button. He shot back in the chair with a tremendous jolt, said a witness. There was no smoke, no sizzle, no sign of movement, nothing. The first four seconds were surely enough. 2,000 volts surging through Nicholas Ingram's body before the charge was cut automatically, first to 1,000 volts, then to 208 volts. Old Sparky may be one of the deranged devices invented by man, but at 9.06pm on Friday the 7th of April 1995, it did its work exactly as intended. 
Mrs Vicky Galvalez, the prison department spokeswoman, gave the following announcement outside the prison. Order of the court has been carried out. Nicholas Lee Ingram was pronounced dead at 9.15pm Friday, April the 7th, 1995. Ingram spent the last 12 of his 31 years on death row and he went to the grave much as he'd lived his life. Angry, defiant and contemptuous to all around him. What remorse he had only emerged afterwards through his lawyer, Mr Clive Stafford-Smith. A specialist in death penalty cases, Mr Stafford-Smith was distraught, choking back the tears. Nicky wasn't very good at speaking. He asked me to give a statement for him. He asked me to say he wasn't the one getting hurt, but his family and the family of the Sawyers. He told me he hoped for something better now because what had happened in his life had been so sad. With all the hullabaloo surrounding the execution of the multi-time criminal, one person was a footnote. J.C. Sawyer. He was buried in Sandy Plains Cemetery South in Marietta, Cobb County, Georgia. A decorated U.S. Army veteran, an innocent victim, a loving husband and an irreparable hole in the family. So that is it for another week. Please remember, if you enjoy the show or want to know more, please follow us on Twitter, at True Crime Fix Pod. That's at True Crime Fix Pod on Twitter. Or look out for our Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast. That's True Crime Fix Podcast on Facebook. I'll be posting information about the week's case on there. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me on True Crime Fix Podcast. That's all one word, True Crime Fix Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, live life to the fullest, because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everybody. (laughs) 